Hey, what's up, everybody? Before we get started with today's show, I've got a great guest lined up for you. But before we get to that, I just want to talk about some ways you can support us, some ways you can help us, help the Lions of Liberty to bring the message of liberty to more and more people. One way to do that is by joining our Patreon, joining our Lions of Liberty Pride, as we call it. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. And there's a lot of stuff we offer. Um, if you're joining from $5 and up, you're going to get access to all of our bonus content. And uh, you're going to get our private Facebook group. You go up from there, you get more and more perks, all the way up to getting merchandise at different levels, getting to uh, at our Nittany level. You get to actually produce a show. You go up from there, and there's more and more impact that, that you can have on our show. You can participate in monthly calls with us, stuff like that. Just go to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Check it all out. And also, check out the Lions of Liberty store if you haven't yet. we got a lot of great t-shirt designs. All of our shows have their own designs. we got a Wax On Tax Off t-shirt. We have a Taxation is Death t-shirt and also a coffee mug uh, that goes with it. So check that all out, lionsofliberty.store. We are born free, and we will die free. The time in between, though, that's complicated. In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential. Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman. Okay, on today's show, we welcome back John Ziegler. I believe it's his fourth or fifth time on this show, the first time since we've rebranded from Felony Friday to Finding Freedom. Uh, But for those of you who aren't familiar with him, he's a documentary filmmaker, a director, and an author. He's a columnist at Mediate. And if you aren't familiar with really the his work on the Penn State scandal, Jerry Sandusky scandal, that's why he's been on in the past, and that's why uh, he's on today. It's what we'll be talking about. Um, it's hard to believe it's been, what, nine years um, since this, uh, this whole thing started. But John has a new podcast out that goes through piece by piece, phase by phase, the different aspects of this scandal. And it is, it's phenomenal. And we're going to spend today talking about that and going through the first uh, three or four episodes and uh, what uh, really the major points that he hits on on that podcast. It's called With the Benefit of Hindsight, which uh, for those familiar with uh, with this case, case means means a lot. It's very literal. And also throughout throughout looking at this, there's, it's, it's very, uh, very relevant throughout the different aspects of this case. So, John, welcome back to the show. John, always good to talk to you, and, and thank you for understanding the nature of the title and the many reasons why it's a good title with the benefit of hindsight. Absolutely. You know, that that's thinking back to that, and of course, we can just start with that. Um, you know, it comes from the quote that the statement that Joe Paterno gave before he was fired, and within that statement, um, he said, he wished he had done more and then said, with or with the benefit of, of hindsight, I wish I'd done more. Of course, the news media reported that, taking out that phrase, with the benefit of hindsight. But yeah, if you can just talk about what, uh, I guess, the name first, what does the name with the benefit of hi- hindsight mean to you uh, with regards to this case? And then take that into 
you know, what's your reason why now you decided to take all this information, all these years and years of uh, investigations and interviews and all this in- uh, analysis that you've done on this incredibly complicated case? Why, why now with the uh, the podcast? Well, the name for the podcast, with the benefit of hindsight, came from our executive producer, Mike Agavino, who's really the reason why this podcast exists. He's the guy who funded the production. He's very well known in the podcasting and radio realm. And, and he thought, and I agree, that the with the benefit of hindsight name works, on, as you already alluded to, on several different levels. Yes, there's the literal level where that was a very noteworthy element of the Joe Paterno statement that, as you already said, was left out by the news media. And the news media plays a huge role in all of this. I mean, one of the many reasons why I think people should listen to this podcast is you'll get a PhD in media malpractice, incompetence, bias, and the way the news media works, or in most cases does not work in this day and age. But there's also the the issue of the significance of the statement itself with regard to the facts of the case. And then there's the larger, almost symbolic element of with the benefit of hindsight, where that's kind of what we're doing. It's now 10 years later, almost exactly. It'll be 10 years. Most people think of the anniversary of this story as being in November when Joe Paterno was fired on November 9th of 2011. So we're getting close to the 10 year anniversary, although in the public consciousness, as you probably already know, Uh, This story actually began in March of 2011. So we're at the 10-year anniversary. And so that's why now. And if it hadn't been for Mike Agavino, I'm quite certain I never would have done this because I I was psychologically done with the story. I I mean, I always held a glimmer of hope, as long as the key players, including Jerry Sandusky, are alive, that, you know, maybe someday – there would be an opportunity to use all of this information that I had accumulated over the last nine years, but I, I didn't have much hope for it. And as a, almost a, a human defense mechanism for that, I, I had basically accepted that this was dead. And um, it was very uh, psychologically stressful to dive back into it because as you already mm-hmm. know, since you've listened to the podcast, this is not your run of the mill, you know, half hour, 40 minute, uh, you know, episode for maybe five to 10 episodes. No, this is heavy lifting. This is, this was grueling. Um, Myself and my co-host Liz Habib, who's a television sports anchor for the Fox affiliate here in Los Angeles. uh, We spent about a hundred hours in a a Los Angeles radio studio putting this together. It it is, um, and it, 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 and it gets very uh, strenuous, not just from a research standpoint, but I mean, I mean it was grueling. <laughs> we, well, I, we I was going to ask you about that because, you know, as someone who I, I do podcasts, but mine are once a week and I can spread it out. And I think your last episode, that would be episode four, it was, it was over three hours long. I mean, these are seriously yeah. intense episodes. And I'm just thinking Liz is sitting there the whole time. Is is this really her first exposure, deep diving into this case or hearing you really talk about it to this extent? Yes. And and I think that's partially why it works and partially why I wanted her to take part, um, because we kind of take her on this journey, this Mm -hmm. bizarre at times, remarkable journey that I've been on over the last nine years. 
and she acts effectively as the audience yep. uh, because she she I mean she comes from a unique background here. She is a University of Pitt grad, so she has no love for Penn State, but she has a, a brother who actually played as a walk-on on the 1986 national championship team for Penn State. So she would, and obviously she's a sportscaster. So she knows the basics of all this, but she reported on this back in 2011, 2012 from the a very conventional wisdom perspective. And so, you know, she comes in it into this from that standpoint. And I, I basically say, no, let me, let me tell you the story <laughs> as I know it, as I've learned it. And, you know, I think her evolution of thought is going to be very similar to, to many of the listeners, at least those that are have not been following this since maybe 2012, mm-hmm. uh, when you know it probably last was a huge national story, and um, and I think it works. I mean, I, I mean, I know a lot of people have, have told us that it, it works, and they really appreciate uh, Liz's uh, participation in this and and the function that that she has in in the in the telling of the story because she asks the questions that the audience would want to ask. And she holds me accountable. I mean, m- most people, John, in this day and age, for some reason, they just want, you know, yes men or yes women around. They don't they don't want to be asked tough questions. I've never been that way. I mean, I, I would do any interview with anybody that was reasonable and, and credible. I, I want my critics to interview me. I, I want, because I feel like I have a better explanation for what happened in this story than anything close to the fairy tales that we were told. And I'm exceedingly confident about that. And it's it's actually frustrating. I've done a lot of interviews in the aftermath of the release of this podcast, but trying to get someone who actually, I, I haven't already convinced to do an interview is very difficult because no one wants to do that because they're going to get their heads handed to them in, in, in all likelihood right. uh, because no one knows the story like I do. And it's not because of anything great about me. It's because no one was stupid enough to immerse themselves in it for, for, for nine years uh, from a completely objective perspective. And so, um, you know, that's the role that, that Liz plays. And I think it's, it's unique and it's effective and it's important because one of the most difficult parts of telling this story is that you have different segments of the population you know, I, I mentioned a PhD uh, in, in media uh, malpractice. I mean, you, you have everybody from the kindergarten level of this story to the PhD level of this story. And, and there's significant numbers of, of people in all those different categories. So how do you teach a class, so to speak, to kindergartners and, and PhD students at the same time? That's it's exceedingly difficult. So uh, you know, we tr- we do our best to try to accept the reality that look, well, most people have either forgotten or, or don't know even the basics anymore. Ten years later, but it's it's pretty easy to get back up to speed because after all, this really was, I believe, the biggest sports scandal of this century for sure, and maybe a, a longer period of, than that. And it and it was in the news for a exceedingly long time. Uh, and and frankly, it might have been one of the last sports stories of its kind to really break through all the clutter. Because now, you know, we're, we're in such a fragmented age and social media has dominated. It's almost impossible for any story to break through uh, that, you know, doesn't involve the president of the United States uh, in some way. And, and heck, I don't even know Biden can break through the way Trump did. So, I mean, they, it's just we're just living in an era where. 
it's we're not going to see stories of this magnitude very often anymore. Mm -hmm. And this one was so big and so important that I felt like we needed to have a record of what actually happened. Because what we were told happened, John, as I think you already know, is not what actually happened. In fact, almost entirely what we were told happened was the opposite of what actually happened. And I believe we've proven that with this podcast. We will continue to prove it as we release these episodes, 19 and all. And the most remarkable element of all this, John, is it's not close. It's not close. And, and there are still people who think that I'm a lunatic. Uh, hopefully that number is is dwindling. I mean, some of the people who think, thought I was a lunatic on this are already starting to do you know minor mea culpas, um, at least those that have been willing to listen to the podcast. But, um, but the reality is that the crackpot view of this case is actually the, those that hold the conventional wisdom. That's how upside down everything in this is, which is kind of symbolic of the whole world at this point. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, frankly, I think people that don't even care about Penn State should be listening to this, not just for the PhD in media malpractice, but I think mm -hmm. people understand a whole lot better this last year of COVID, especially with regard to the media coverage, if they understand what happened in Penn State. And I know those two things sound like they have nothing in common, but they actually have a lot in common. They have to deal with a moral panic where people get invested in a narrative. They don't want to uh, admit that they were wrong. They keep doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on that original mistake. Uh, facts, logic do not matter. Uh, the elite want to uh, hold on to their power and they cannot possibly acknowledge the idea that they as experts might have been wrong. Mm -hmm. And the media, above all else, will never allow anything contrary to their narrative to gain any traction because they put too many chips down on this story. Yeah, that's you know that, that's that, the, I was going to say, I think that is a good comparison. And another aspect of it is they both started out with all of the people thinking they were doing the right thing. I think with COVID... You know, people thought they were doing the right thing. Governors thought they were acting in people's best self-interest. And then it's like this backwards thing where you you have to continue down that path because if you if you don't, then you're you're going to expose how wrong you were at the start. And it's the same with the Penn State thing. And that's I mean, we can get into the details of it. But even uh, you know, going back, I think it was episode three when you're talking about the Paterno family, where the Paterno family ends up having you know their self-interest. They've invested everything in throwing Jerry Sandusky under the bus and to um, actually vindicate Sandusky, which would vindicate them. They're, they're against doing it because especially Scott Paterno is, is, uh, is so far down that path. That's a great point that you bring up. And I have to say one of the many things that I have learned in this ordeal, and I've learned a lot uh, over the last nine years, is that one of the most dangerous things that can happen in humanity is when people with power think they are doing the right thing or they're doing something for good uh, when they become convinced of their own, the superiority of their own uh, uh, moral status there, you know, this is where virtue signaling comes in. Mm -hmm. when, when they become convinced of that, of the virtuousness of their cause, look out because now they will do anything in order to justify, you know, the ends justifying the means. And uh, and that means, you know, in COVID, forget about free speech. You know, we're going to we're going to kill dissent. 
uh, you know, uh, it, we're, we're going to do all sorts of things that would have been unthinkable in the United States of America previously because we're doing this for your better good, mm-hmm. for the better health of the country. We're going to save your lives for you. And um, and and similarly, when when the when the objective is we've got to get this child molester, this serial child molesting monster, we're going to do everything we can. Doesn't matter if we don't have a fair trial. Doesn't matter if, mm-hmm. if we if we pay a, a millions of dollars to a bunch of liars. It doesn't it doesn't matter if we're going to destroy lives that had nothing to do with this uh, as, as collateral damage because we've got to get that monster. Uh, and if you're not with us on this, you're a bad person. Just like if you don't wear your mask, you're a bad person. Yeah. If, uh, um, if, and, if you're not so, with us, you're defending. You're uh, you're actually helping to uh, defend and actually enable a child predator. Uh, right. That's, I mean, that's the logic. Right. And no one's going to go against that except someone as dumb as me. So I mean, I mean. And well, so- let's let, let's talk about that for a minute, John, because I, I forget which episode it was, but this really stuck out to me. And, you know, you've talked about before that, I mean, you have no connection to Penn State. You went to Georgetown. You did grow up in, uh, did you grow up in Pennsylvania? Or yeah, Bucks you County. Did. So, yes. so, yeah, very, very familiar with, with the area and with Penn State football and, and, with, and with Joe Paterno, of course. But you don't have a connection to the school. One of the few people um, who got so involved in this case investigating it, maybe the only one, um, who, uh, who d- doesn't have any ties to Penn State. And the... I forget which episode it was, but you talked about that everyone else. And this is, I think, is so important. Everyone else was invested in, um, you know, their own self-interest in different ways. Be it if it's the uh, paterno supporters, or, or or the person who was uh, the uh, the woman who was organizing uh, the um, board, the uh, Penn State board, you know, takeover of Penn. Mary Beth yes, Schmidt. yes, of uh, people from all, all different sides who who have who have these in who are invested in, in uh, supporting this narrative, even though the narrative is entirely false. And I, you're, what you said about it is you're the only one that was just looking for the truth. And honestly, that's the only thing that can explain why you're still around after all these years investigating it. I mean, because there's a lot of people don't understand maybe, but there's not money in this for you. I mean... No, no, my wife, uh, it's amazing to me that my wife has not divorced me over this. I, who knows uh, how much money I've lost on it, how many opportunities I've lost, how much damage my career has had. But thank you for recognizing this point. And this is not about uh, singing my praises. This is about explaining how is it that it's this guy we've probably never heard of who finds the truth of this massive story when no one else did. And the reason it is exactly as you just said, I was in a literally unique position. A Penn Stater could not have gotten to the truth here because a a fervent Penn Stater had too many hurdles Mm -hmm. to overcome. There was, I could talk for an hour about all the hurdles, but the main one is, as you've already alluded to, the Paterno family. If you're if you are a, a a Penn Stater who's into this story and you want to prove that the conventional wisdom is wrong, there's a 99.9% chance you're a huge Joe Paterno fan, right? Mm-hmm. So a huge Joe Paterno fan is not going to go down a path that the Paterno family has openly said is is not true and that's not what we want and it's against our interests all through the voice of Scott Paterno, the son of Joe Paterno, who was his lawyer and his PR person when the crisis hit. 
No one's going to do that. And this is why, this is the beginning of why Scott and I did not get along. Scott, in my opinion, immediately felt, um, I don't know what, maybe whether, whether threatened or fearful or uneasy about me. One of those words is, is the correct word because he had no control over me. Right? He, I, I, he quickly realized the paternal thing wasn't going to work with me because I didn't give a shit. All right. I mean, I, look, I well, he, 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 he thought probably and I think you talk about some podcast that you were coming in, you know, just to uh, to make to make a, maybe make a documentary, make some money off of it. Right. He couldn't read you. That's a thousand. I am morally certain that one of the ways he discredited me with people uh, within his sphere was, oh, let me tell you about this guy, Ziggler. He's a talk radio guy and he's a grifter. And as soon as, you know, either makes money or realizes he can't make money, he'll be out of this. And, you know, so don't even don't even worry about him. Well, here I am 10 years later and I'm still here. And it's not because of money. It's mm-hmm. because I, I care about the truth. And I'm the only one that was in a position to get to the truth. Again, not because I'm any great shakes. I've made so many mistakes in this whole thing. Some of them have been very key mistakes. In fact, my mistakes are part of the reason why I have enough guilt to still be in this. If, if I had done this properly at the beginning, I might have had a chance to at least fix part of it. And I blew it I, for many reasons. And so it's not about Ziggler being, you know, some some amazing guy. I, I was almost literally built for this situation, John. I mean, you know this, most of this already, but let's go through this. I mean, I grew up in Pennsylvania, but I'm not a Penn State guy. Mm-hmm. That's key right there. So I have an understanding of the culture and the and the history, but I'm not emotionally invested. I was actually a Notre Dame fan growing up, but I used to root against Penn State all the time. The only Penn State game I ever went to was a Temple game at Veteran Stadium. I was rooting for Temple. Uh, but I respected Paterno, and I understood I understood the, the you know the the culture there. Mm-hmm. Um, I've coached high school football in two different states. I've covered college and pro football for for television and radio, so I know the culture there. I I grew up in a Catholic environment, not just as as someone who grew up Catholic, but I went to Catholic grade school, high school, and college. The Catholic thing is huge, not just because the Paternos happen to be Catholic, but because so much of this is seen through the prism of the Catholic Church uh, pedophilia scandal or pedophilia scandal. And to, and to fully understand that is, is to understand so many different elements of how things went wrong here. Because in my opinion, most people, when this story breaks in 2011, especially in Pennsylvania, where the church scandal was huge, and especially in the media, they're looking at this and going, oh, we've already seen this movie. We, we, we've got Joe Paterno's the Pope. He's even a, an Italian Catholic. We've got the administrators of these Cardinals covering everything up. And Jerry Sandusky is the pedophile priest. And the Penn State football fans are, are turning the other way because they're enabling their sacred institution of Penn State football. And the football is the religion. And I knew that that was the I knew that that was the narrative and that was the movie. But I also knew enough to go, wait a minute. That's not what happened. Uh, there's, or there's too many dissimilarities with what happened in the Catholic Church scandal. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit later. But then there's also the issue of I'm, I'm an expert in the way the media works. I've devoted by 2011, I've devoted an enormous amount of my career, both in talk radio and as a documentary filmmaker, 
to examining stories where the media got it wrong. So I am a literal expert in being able to, one, discern a story where the media is vulnerable to getting it wrong and understanding how and why they got it wrong. And, and then when you add into that, I was a guy who, um, with asbestos skin, who, uh, you know, again, my wife doesn't like this, but doesn't really care that much about, uh, you know, my career being a disaster or, um, or taking, you know, the arrows, I, I can take it. So I would, it's almost as if I was built in a lab uh, for, for this particular story. And, and there are other aspects of this that are almost weird as, as to why that's the case. So that's how this happened. And I, to your point, not to belabor it, a Penn Stater could not have done this. And it's not just the paternal family, um, but there are other elements of this. I mean, there's, let's go back to the COVID example. You're asking, you know, one of the things Mike Agavino and I have disagreed about is well, who's our target audience? And I keep saying, Penn Staters are not our target audience for this, uh, for the, with the benefit of hindsight, because you're asking yeah. Penn Staters, you're asking Penn Staters to, to, to do the following, to say, oh, wait a minute. First of all, you got to ask them to go through this, this psychological trauma again, because this was a, an incredibly traumatic period of time. I mean, horrendously traumatic. And then you ask them to, to uh, now look, I need you to take a look at this again, which no one wants to do if you've gone through trauma before. But then I'm asking them to acknowledge that that trauma that they went through was unnecessary because none of this actually happened. And oh, by the way, you're at least partially responsible for the trauma you endured because you threw five of your best people under the bus with no information and a moral panic in three days. And now that's against humanity. You, you, and that's nothing against, that's nothing to do with Penn Staters because there are many Penn Staters who are very invested in finding out what actually happened here. Cause that was Joe mm -hmm. Paterno's dying wish. Just find out what the truth was. But the vast majority of people are in the camp of, a, I don't want to go through this again. And two, why would I want to be forced to admit I was duped? Uh, I mean, the old saying that it's far easier to dupe somebody than to get them to admit that they were duped uh, and be culpable for, for how and why this happened, because this this was a classic moral panic where everybody just immediately curls up into the fetal position. And, you know, in one week, we go from uh, Joe Paterno just having been the the winningest coach in the history of college football to the to the football pep rally for uh, what was supposed to be his final home game against Nebraska being canceled and replaced with a 10,000 person candlelight vigil for victims who nobody even knew their names yeah. let's I, let's talk let's talk about that the the panic so that that's the title of episode 2 panic and I want to come back to episode one, which is very important, talking about the, the date of the shower incident, which we'll get to in a minute, which is the incident that everyone knows about. But talk about that panic. I listened to an interview you just did um, uh, with uh, Kevin Horn on your other podcast, The World According to Zig. But he was in school at the time. He was uh, the editor, or I guess he was just writing for Onward State, eventually became the editor. But I think he put it well, and this is where I was at the time. I, I was an alumni graduated, but looking back on what was happening there, um, as Kevin said, and I agree with him, 
and like looking at the, you, you see the grand jury presentment, you see everything that's happening. I didn't even consider Sandusky being innocent. And that's actually surprising for me because I come from a little bit of, of a different background with my dad uh, being a defense attorney. So I have a little more of a read on things like this and even even more so now after seeing this in other cases. But it was it was assumed by everyone, everyone at Penn State assumed that Jerry, Jerry Sandusky was guilty. Obviously, he's guilty. Look at all these. Look at the presentment. Look at the horrible things he did. The only question was, what is Joe Paterno's culpability in this? And that's all anybody was looking at. That's that was it. That was it. Well, John, what you said and, and Kevin in that interview, which will be part of the podcast, because I am getting now that the podcast is out, how the interview with Kevin Horn happened was now there are some people contacting me and saying, hey, you know, I'd like to be interviewed or I'd like to tell my my story. And Kevin was one I was interested in because I knew for years that Kevin knew that Jerry Sandusky mm-hmm. was innocent, but he wasn't willing to say it publicly. And now maybe the environment is such that he's willing to do so. And here's a guy who covered the trial, covered every aspect of the story, uh, was the editor at the, you know, the the most popular online uh, Penn State uh, uh, publication, Onward State. And, um, and what you just said there is so important. It is really, it's, the way I describe it is, you know, if you think of this journey as, you know, you're deciding which path to take, that's the first decision that everyone made that put them down the wrong path. Because, and it's natural, Joe is Joe Paterno. He's a much larger figure than Jerry ever was. And Jerry's been retired for over 10 years at this point. Joe just became the winning his coach in the history of college football, and everyone knows he's about to retire. So instinctively, everyone is trying to protect, and I get it, I understand it, I was in the same boat, trying to protect Joe, who, by the way, clearly was not in a position to protect himself because he was too old at this point. And so so everyone immediately goes, all right, what's the best way to, to protect Joe? Well, we're not we're not going to... Uh, to say, hold on, let's wait for the facts about Jerry. No, no, w- because that might look like, remember, what the, what's the accusation here? The accusation is Penn State helped cover this up. Well, if you're immediately rushing to Jerry's defense, that feeds into that narrative, right? right. So, yeah. in, so instead, everyone goes the opposite direction and says, okay, Jerry is unbelievably guilty we're not even going to look at it we don't even need to look at it we're going to we're going to say that the you know we're going to pray for the victims like scott paterno did on november 8th of 2011 the day before joe paterno was fired and we're going to do a massive candlelight vigil for these guys and we don't even know their names uh, replacing the football uh, uh pep rally on that friday night and then on saturday we're going to do a prayer we're going to do a prayer at midfield before the game with players from penn state and nebraska praying for these all, all based, yeah, all based on just a grand jury presentment, which Nothing. everyone knows who knows anything about uh, grand jury presentments is a hundred percent one-sided. I mean, just one side. We don't even know their names, John, and we we don't know their ages. We mm-hmm. we we know, and everyone's presuming. I'm I'm convinced at this point. Everyone is presuming that there are at this point eight twelve-year-old boys that just came forward with, you know, in, in the public perception, right? That mm-hmm. they're, no, eight, sure. they're, they're eight 12-year-old boys that were just abused three weeks ago and have come forward all at the same time to say, oh, my God, this has been horrible what Jerry Sandusky did to me. That's not 
even in the stratosphere of what the allegations were. And, and so I cannot emphasize enough how taking that initial path to, okay, do we, do we wait for the facts on Sandusky or do we rush to try to salvage Paterno by throwing Sandusky into the bus and everyone takes that latter path that is the point of no return. Mm-hmm. That is the point of no return on this story because once you start going down that path, there, there's literally no going back, especially when the Paterno family through Scott Paterno becomes deeply invested in that not having been the wrong strategy because this was the biggest moment of Scott Paterno's life. And he was actually thought of as a hero. He was thought of. He was he was applauded. His name was chanted after he he, he said so brave for, for the for a very, very short amount of time. He was considered a hero. Well, no, but even in <laughs> even in Joe Posnanski's book, um, Paterno, uh, and by the way, I've always believed that the Posnanski book alone, just ex- the existence of the Posnanski mm-hmm. book, blows apart the entire cover up theory because you're asking us to believe. That Joe Paterno, after he knew that Jerry Sandusky was under investigation, after he had gotten a subpoena to testify at Jerry Sandusky's grand jury, as well as other administrators from Penn State, that they, clearly, if, if, if they had been covering this up, this thing was going to explode. It was all going to collapse. He decides in that environment, you know what? I need to have a, um, a Joe Posnanski, a, a well-known author, come and follow me around for this year because this is going to be a great year. This is going to be a great year to turn into a book. Um, that makes no goddamn sense uh, at, at all. But in that book, he is has great praise for Scott Paterno. Scott Paterno is seen as the wise one, the only one within the inner circle who saw the red flags and, and saw the handwriting on the wall and realized that Joe was going to be in trouble. And I got to tell you, John, that was a really interesting moment for me because when I asked Scott about the Posnansky book, and then I didn't know Scott hardly at all at this point, because I felt like Posnansky had done a disservice because he was making it sound like there must be legitimacy to the idea that Joe was going to get fired because here he has Scott saying, Joe, you're going to get fired. I mean, you've you got to understand this. We're, we're in deep, deep trouble here, right? To me, that was, that, that was giving credibility to that whole idea. And when I raised that to Scott. Scott couldn't have, Scott was happy with it. And I'm like, what, 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 what? And so what I, what I started to realize was that the reason why hmm. Scott's reaction to everything, I mean, I'm talking about everything was totally different than everybody else within the inner circle was not because Scott knew something I didn't know. That was my initial stupid presumption. Cause I, 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 I go, it's the way I work in life. I usually give people all benefit of the doubt until they prove me wrong and then they're dead to me uh and and so i gave scott all this benefit of the doubt and what i finally realized far too late was it's not that he knows something i don't know in fact he knows he knows a lot less than i know in a lot of ways it's that he has a self-interest in this Mm -hmm. that i didn't fully understand and couldn't comprehend because i'm i'm thinking he's the son of joe paterno his number one priority here is is one defending his dad's legacy and two getting to the truth since that was his dad's dying wish. And that's just totally false. Well, he also, he, he thought, didn't Scott, he thought he knew something that he actually didn't know. Right. Yes. With the, uh, thank you for mentioning that. And that took me a couple of years to figure out too. And I only, I only figured this out. See that again, 
I, I referenced that I was in a unique position. I really was in a unique position. Again, having nothing to do with me being anything great. It's just that it just happened that I was the one who was having access to the information. So because I'm having conversations with Graham Spanier, right? So Graham mm-hmm. and I are talking a lot. Graham tells me about this email that he got um, and that, that made me figure out what happened with Scott Paterno? And it's it's kind of an involved story, but here's the short version. So before the crap hits the fan and the grand jury, in fact, before anyone even testifies from Penn State, uh, David Jones, who was an anti-Paterno sports reporter at a local newspaper in the state college area, uh, has like a beer with Scott Paterno. And, and basically, I'm paraphrasing here for speed, to basically tells him, uh, guess what? Jerry Sandusky was a pedophile uh, and we're going to prove it and uh, it's going to bring down the whole program, whatever, something along those lines. And Scott's like, what? What? Because uh, Scott didn't know Jerry Sandusky at all. And and at first, I don't think Scott was buying it. But then almost immediately after that, everyone starts to get their subpoenas to testify to this grand jury. I guarantee knowing Scott at that moment, he's going, oh, my gosh, I got this inside information from David Jones. This is all real. We need to get behind McQuarrie. We need to separate ourselves. We need to have a different lawyer than uh, Spanier, Curley and Schultz. Well, here's what really happened, John. (laughs) David Jones didn't know what the hell he was talking about. And the proof of this was and by the way, David Jones, after the story breaks, thinks, thinks that he was told about the McQuarrie episode. They, and, and, and Scott Paterno thinks it, that's what they were referring to was the McQuarrie episode, except I know that's not what happened. And the reason I know that is because Spanier shared the email with me. Here's what happened. Jones was afraid of Spanier, afraid of him because they had had a big uh, dust up over the uh, Richard Casey case uh, years mm-hmm. before. And Jones was wrong. Spanier was right. And so he has a colleague at his newspaper email Spanier to try to get a reaction to this rumor that they've heard. And basically what's happened is they've learned about the 1998 report, which had nothing to do with Mike McQuarrie. It was deemed to be not uh, uh, actionable by the uh, the DA at the time. Uh, that's the whole Ray Greekar story, which gets blown out of proportion because he disappears years later in a complete that's a, red that's a whole That's a whole different right, thing. Right. Yeah. A whole different thing. Um, but anyway, the email to Spanier is, we have heard about an allegation of sex abuse against Jerry Sandusky while he was at Penn State. And do you know anything about this? And Graham responds, and I believe this is word for word, his response, no, this is the first I have ever heard of this. Can you tell me more? Now, this is the president of Penn State responding to an email from a newspaper reporter saying, can you tell me more? They do not return the email. That's how little the newspaper thought of this, this subject, this report. And and the key part is I've already implied with how how demonstrative I got was it, it was during the time when Jerry was at Penn state, Mm -hmm. he was not at Penn state. During the McQuarrie episode, right. so so basically, what happens here is Scott. So Span- yeah. Spanier wasn't at Penn State in '98. Then I guess 
No, 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 no. I'm talking about Sandusky was not at, at, at Penn State in 2001, 2000, 2001. So uh, I, I, I somehow. Right, right. No, I'm just trying to, to clarify. But, but Spanier responded, can you tell? He hadn't heard of it. Can you tell me more? Right. About, so Spanier didn't know about the 98 episode? No, because oh. why would he? Why would he have? Or there, this, there was this was a this was a situation that the D.A. declared unfounded. This never got to his level. Yeah. So, so, so I mean, remember, I, I don't know that people fully appreciate. I know you do. But how large an institution Penn State is. Yeah. I mean, I mean, at any given time, there are all sorts of people being investigated for whatever that doesn't mm-hmm. come to anything. If it doesn't even get to the charging status, yeah. I doubt yeah. that Spanier even would have even heard about it. And by the way, I guess it's theoretically possible someone might have said something to him, but but all but twelve years later, he doesn't remember, right? Mm-hmm. So because yeah. it was a non it was a non deal. But the point of this is this is how Scott Paterno starts down his wrong path because he thinks he's getting inside information from David Jones when what he's getting is a rumor that had nothing to do with with the key episode that eventually Scott would totally embrace, much to his own detriment and the detriment of his father, which is the whole Mike McQuarrie episode. Hey, let's take a real quick break here. I want to tell you guys about another podcast that I've been listening to, really enjoying, friend of the show, Matt McKinley has a great show called Burning Daylight. And I guarantee you, it is not like any other podcast that you're listening to because it's one of the only, maybe the only podcast out there that is about being a cowboy. Matt brings on people who are cowboys like himself to share stories and talk about the industry, uh, tell tales, and uh, just tell ridiculous jokes. Matt's a really funny guy. He has a great job with the show. And it is unique and interesting as shit. So please check it out. Burning daylight with Matt McKinley. So and he embraces it, and I think, and I think you've you've said this as well. But because he has that in his mind, that he's already decided that Jerry Sandusky is guilty, as he's he's the legal representation for his father when his father is uh, testifying before the grand jury. I don't know. Is he implanting things in uh, in his dad's mind to say that there was a sexual nature, just in case to cover to cover his dad for any sort of liability? Or that's a good question, and I don't have the answer to that. I mean, um, I, I I can tell you this. I mean, if, let's just look at the at the facts, and people can draw their own conclusions. So you've got Scott Paterno, who clearly becomes invested in the idea that Jerry Sandusky is guilty before anybody else within the inner circle. There's no question about that, right? We also got to remember, what is Scott Paterno's job? Scott Paterno's job is a Republican lobbyist in Harrisburg, okay? Uh, This is a Republican administration. It's a new Republican administration at this time. Tom Corbett is governor. He was the former AG when this uh, investigation began. This is a Republican investigation. So, it is clearly in Scott's best interest to not do anything to disrupt this investigation, right? Mm-hmm. So, so who is with Joe Paterno before his grand jury uh, testimony? Scott is there. Uh, now, Scott has tweeted, and this is very interesting. Uh, you know, there there is a 
There is a description of Joe Paterno's interview he gave before his grand jury testimony. So he, on the day he gives his grand jury testimony, before he gives the testimony, there's an interview with, I believe, prosecutors and police. And Scott Paterno is there, right? The description of that interview says nothing about sex, no sexual nature, nothing mm -hmm. at all. Scott has tweeted that the first time he ever heard the, the, the term sex related to the conversation between McQuarrie and Paterno was what in prosecutors told Joe as they were leaving that meeting. That, that's, again, a paraphrase, but that's, that's, that's my perception of what Scott tweeted. So we, so we have Scott himself strongly implying that prosecutors may have implanted in Joe's mind, you know, Joe, this was a, a of a sexual nature, right? Just so we're clear on that. And then Joe says exactly that in his very brief and rather vague grand jury testimony. But to me, the part where Scott Paterno clearly plays the biggest role over what Joe says here, and you know, this is a story I broke, which meant it, no one picked it up because it's me and I'm toxic. And and this was counter uh intuitive at the time because it seemed like it was a bad set of facts for joe paterno but people don't know because the media never bothered to report this again because i'm the one that broke it the last person effectively that they interviewed before they arrest jerry sandusky uh you know they they do that in november of 2011 in october of 2011 they interview joe paterno one more time they do it at his house and who's he with Scott Paterno. It's it's just him, Scott, and the investigators. And the reason why, in my very strong opinion, John, they do this is because they're looking at his other vague, short grand jury testimony. And they're like, are we really going to hang all of this on a phrase from Joe Paterno, as powerful and as trusted as he is, if we arrest Jerry Sandusky and start to try to create this firestorm. And Joe comes out and says, what? I don't remember Mike telling me that. The whole thing's going to blow apart. They need Joe Paterno locked down. And that second interview with Scott being the only guy there with him in his house, they do. They lock Joe Paterno down into a far more precise and declarative backing of Mike McQuarrie's uh, version of the story. And I would submit that, you know, opportunity was there, motive was there for, for Scott Paterno. And by the way, it might not even have been um, on purpose. It could have just been by osmosis, just, you know, the culture of, of clearly a year. I'm sure they had had many conversations about this where Scott is giving the message to Joe, we've got to back Mike. We've got to back Mike. We've got to back, back up Mike. And, of course, Joe, he's loyal to his guys. Mike had quarterback for him. He had been an assistant coach for him. And, in fact, in the last years of Joe's coaching, mm -hmm. if you look at – you can Google pictures of your for yourself. You know, there's numerous pictures of Joe using Mike – it's like the last guy on the sideline that was still paying attention to him to get a message into the offensive yeah, he huddle. Was, he was his eyes and ears those last right. couple of years, for sure. Right, exactly. So, And that's important because, you know, if you're an 84-year-old man and you're confused and you don't remember what someone told you 10 years, 11 years before, whatever it was at that time, 
I, I don't think it's a stretch, especially when your son's telling, we got to back this guy. What are you going to do? That everything in Joe Paterno's instincts is going to be to back his guy, especially, by the way, I, and I, I do believe this is a factor. You know, Joe was a Republican himself. So the, this is a prosecution. You know, Republicans tend to be pro-prosecution. I used to be pro-prosecution all the time until I got into the ball in this case. But I mean, um, you know, so it's 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 a it's it's a natural inclination that Joe's going to go. Okay, I don't. I'm, I'm this is my interpretation. Joe's going. I don't remember this, but everyone's telling me it happened. It's it it must be right. I can't believe it is, but. but I'm going to do what I think is right. And I'm going to back Mike McQuarrie. So in that second interview, that's what happens. But I would submit that if that was really, if Joe knew that to be true, then why on his deathbed is he saying, just find out what the truth is? Because that's not a guy who feels confident that he knows what the hell happened. That's uh, a good point. And, and, and it doesn't make any sense to me. And, you know, the the HBO movie starring Al Pacino as as Joe Paterno. I haven't watched it. Okay, well, don't bother. I can I can give I can. But but it, but it, but it's funny to me, John. I have been able to uh, in looking at what the other side has put forward in all this, whether it's Aaron Fisher's book or Sarah Ganim's reporting or the documentary Happy Valley or the HBO movie Paterno. You can you can actually discern the the problems with that narrative from their own presentations and the paternal movie on HBO. It's funny. They're in the right church, but they're in the wrong pew. Their narrative is that, and this is a crazy narrative that Joe Paterno, I'm paraphrasing, basically just forgot that Jerry Sandusky was a pedophile. Now how, how that happens. I have, I have no idea. Um, but, the, but that's the basic narrative so it's somewhat protective of paterno in that he just he just didn't remember that oh yeah jerry's that pedophile that i protected all those years ago that's that's Um, something people forget yeah right what but what's funny to me about that narrative john other than its inherent absurdity is i actually believe the opposite is close to what happened here i think joe paterno forgot that jerry wasn't a pedophile that he, for, he lost confidence in having known who Jerry was, that he was a goofball who loved kids and had boundary issues and was naive because it had been 11, 12 years since they'd worked together. Mm-hmm. And he's now 84 years old. And he basically just, he loses confidence in his own memory and he loses confidence in his, his memory of who Jerry Sandusky was. And he's got, Scott whispering in his ear and the prosecution is clearly very invested in, and they, they need that's all the absurdities in this. The idea that Joe Paterno gets destroyed, not just because he didn't do anything wrong. That's number one. But at the beginning of this, he's a prosecution hero because they need him to be a prosecution hero. The first article, I can't say this enough, the first article about Joe Paterno and all this by Sarah Ganim, the woman who would win the Pulitzer Prize, although she didn't deserve it, for having broken this story because she got a leak from the attorney general's office looking for more victims. That's basically what happened. But that first article, the headline is, Joe Paterno praised for his handling of sex abuse suspicions involving Jerry Sandusky. And it's from an attorney general source. That's the basis of 
the article. Now, so you've got the attorney general's office and Sarah Ganim writing the story saying Joe is a hero. Joe's on the right side here. That was an inch away from being the narrative, John, mm-hmm. at the beginning of this. But that narrative didn't sell. The, 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 in my opinion, when this story breaks over that weekend, the first full weekend in November of 2011, I think they're a bit shocked that it's not getting that much traction. It's getting interest, but there's it's not a huge deal. They need this to be a huge deal. Well, because- what changed it? Wasn't it uh, when Curly and Schultz were indicted and then there was the press conference and who was it? Like the, uh, I forget the Noonan. title, but the, Noonan, Noonan, who comes out and says, they ask him, uh, is Joe Paterno culpable? Essentially not a direct quote, but, and he said that he should have done more or there's, there's more he could have done. Yeah. The moral culpability yeah. Um, as opposed to legal. And that's when they basically, you know, throw Joe Paterno under the bus and it's, and that's throwing gas. Basically they've got this little fire here. And they're looking looking at their fire going, well, boy, we expected a bigger fire than this. Uh, we need to pour some gasoline on this fire. Well, the best gasoline they had for the news media was Joe Paterno being morally culpable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now all of a sudden, <laughs> and, um, and, and it explodes in a, in a massive, massive way. I, 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 there's so many moments that led us down the wrong path here. But um, I mean, I even believe the timing of this was so key. And, and by the way, the timing of this, there's a lot of evidence got moved up, maybe because they understood how important the timing was. I believe if Jerry Sandusky had gotten uh, in, indicted over the, that next weekend when it was originally scheduled, that weekend of the final home game against Nebraska, I believe none of this happens because I believe that Joe Paterno gets his last home game. They celebrate 409. Uh, and now there's no more home games. Okay. The fact that there was a home game that next weekend on ESPN was so key mm-hmm. to this because there was no ability to stall for time. ESPN was on this 24 seven in an incredibly slow sports week where the NBA was on strike. Baseball had just ended. No one cares about hockey or co- you know, college basketball hasn't started yet. So there's nothing going on in November, a rating sweeps month back then. And so this is gold. And so ESPN, now there's a pressure point. You can't have Joe Paterno on the sidelines in, in a home game. This is going to be a celebration of pedophilia protector. They can't do this. If the, if you got if you somehow had gotten past that home game, I I really believe that Paterno would have survived the rest of the year. And in our short attention span world, you know, as soon as you get through you know one week uh, and nothing happens, then you're you're pretty much home free. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, there's so many elements of the perfect storm here, uh, but timing was definitely one of them. Well, for one thing, he probably wouldn't have made the uh, the statement uh, with the benefit of hindsight. I wish I did more, or at least it would have been more spread out. It would have been condensed into having to do it in that short time frame. Well, let me let me pick up. Let me, John. Let me pick up yeah. on one thing you just said there, because I, I don't know if this is where you're going or not. But part of the mistake of that statement and the statements that were made. But I mean, there's so many mistakes made, and all that are made by Scott Paterno, who who thought he was the strategic 
genius. But the strategically, it was a massive error to also announce that you were retiring at the end yeah. of the year, um, which is was part of that statement because that did two or at least two really important did three things. It did three things that were really important. Number one, it made that Nebraska game Paterno's last home game, which made it a celebration, which you couldn't do a celebration that weekend in that environment. You couldn't do it, but that's what it would have been. Number two, it eliminates any fear anyone has of going against you because you just said in a month you're gone anyway. So, so no one has any fear of you. And, not, and number three, it got portrayed as an admission of guilt yep. because you're, you're effectively punishing in a perception. You're punishing yourself, even though, and this is why I think it happened from the paternal perspective, and it's because one, because Scott's a moron, but but because in their minds, they already knew this was his last year. That's why the Posnansky book was in the works. So in their minds, they weren't doing anything new or special, but that's not what the perception was. The media gets that statement and they go, aha, blood in the water. He's already acknowledged. He's not coaching next year. He's retiring at the end of this year. He's admitting he did wrong. We need more blood. Um, in fact, exactly right. almost direct quotes to that effect in response on ESPN, which are in my documentary film, uh, the framing of Joe Paterno, which you can see on YouTube. So there were, and I, and I knew immediately, oh my God. I, I, I mean, here I was in Southern California and I, and I thought, oh dear God, the, 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 he's done. There, there's no way you, you can't get out of this now. Um, and, 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 you know, look, and I have, I, Scott Paterno and I hate each other's guts. There's, there's no, there's, there's, <laughs> just, just so everyone knows. I mean, listen to all the episodes, but I mean, I hadn't heard this interview before, the recorded phone call, not interview, with uh, Scott Paterno, episode three of With the Benefit of Hindsight. You got to hear this recorded phone call because it is – Scott Paterno is insane. I mean, he's, he's crazy. And believe, crazy. It, and believe it or not, John, we, we, we withheld some, of, some stuff that was pretty amazing. Um, yeah, I, I think that phone call tells a lot of the story. It's not just entertaining and bizarre. Uh, but that's a phone call that happens after I interviewed Jerry Sandusky in prison. And Scott Paterno is irate at me because he gets leaked probably from Anthony Lebrano, the, the fact that I had done this. He has absolutely no idea why I have done this, what I'm going to do with the interview. He has no idea I'm going on the Today Show uh, with Matt Lauer. He has, he, has, he has no idea what Jerry said, no idea what I asked him. And he doesn't care. That's the most amazing thing. He doesn't care. He didn't ask it. Maybe, maybe Jerry confessed. You think he'll right. ask that? Right. <laughs> Scott asks zero questions. Literally, the only question he asked me was, is it true that Jerry said he didn't like my dad? Which I thought was bizarre that that was the only question that he, that he asked. Although, you know, the answer to that really played a significant role in my perception of Jerry Sandusky. And for people who don't know, I went into that interview presuming Jerry was guilty as hell. I, I was open to the idea that some of the episodes might be exaggerated or might even be false, but in, but the, by and large, that he was guilty. He was a, he was a pedophile. That was my uh, bedrock basis. Um, and one of the many things that confused me about that interview was I was sensing 
and I, I've not, I've struggled to come up with the right word because disdain is too much, uh, too strong a word, but something between disdain and dislike that Jerry Sandusky had for Joe Paterno. And I'm like, and John, you know the way my brain works, I think, in that I'm always looking for things to fit together. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I'm like, okay, wait a minute, hold on. If you're a pedophile for 40 years, right? And, and this is an illness you've been fighting for 40 years. You, you hate that this exists within you and you've been fighting it for all this time period. And because of this illness, this guy you might not have liked, but you worked with for decades and won two national championships with and who's beloved in your community. And he gets his entire life destroyed over what you did, over your, your horrible illness. You're going to have at least a semblance of guilt. You're going you're gonna to feel sympathy, right? You're going to feel terrible that you did this to this guy. You're never going to say anything bad, especially in your only interview you've ever done after your conviction. You're not going to say on the record bad things or negative things about Joe Paterno. That makes no sense. However, if you're innocent, and Joe Paterno was actually a key witness in your prosecution, then that makes sense. You see what I'm saying, John? We're, no, we're, 100%. Yeah. All of a sudden, that clicks. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. Because that, to me, is not something that anybody could fake. No one could be smart enough to think about it. I'm certainly not Jerry. Jerry is the furthest thing from a... Uh, criminal mastermind. Uh, he's, I mean, that's one of the funniest misconceptions of this whole thing. I mean, Jerry is the exact opposite. One of the thousand and one points of the perfect storm is, you know, he's this famous defensive coordinator. And so therefore there are people who think, oh, well, in fact, fact, we have tape of Andrew Shubin, the key uh, accuser attorney in this whole thing, actually telling our purposely fake accuser who did a sting operation on him. That's a later episode that'll blow your mind. Uh, We actually have him saying to him that Jerry was a great defensive coordinator and he used these skills to to master this cover-up for 40 years of his sex crimes. And and we're like, the fake accuser and I are like, this can't possibly be real. I mean, Shubin really thinks this. This is the exact opposite of who this guy is. And frankly, John, you know, as slow a talker and as indecisive as Jerry is, I don't know how the hell he was ever even a successful defensive coordinator. I, 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 I think it was probably a different time and a different era. Um, but he's not, you know, he's not Bill Belichick. Um, mm-hmm. this, this, that's not who Jerry Sandusky is. And, uh, and so anyway, that was a key moment as an aside, but that was a key moment for me psychologically because nothing about what Jerry was doing or saying was consistent with what you have to believe. You have to believe he was fighting this for 40 some years. And that, by the way, also goes to my reaction to the Bob Costas interview. And I understood why the Bob Costas interview was a disaster. And I knew it was a disaster mm-hmm. the moment I heard it. And I was presuming Jerry was mostly guilty at that time. So I didn't care that much. I just thought, wow, boy, that was a really bad answer he gave when asked are you sexually attracted to young boys? And he didn't immediately respond. No. However, I will say, and I believe I've been vindicated. I'm, well, not I'm not only did he not respond, he was, it was, he repeated the question back and like, well, didn't well, he? when you, when, when, when you speak to Jerry, that's, he does that all the time. Okay. That is, that is a quirk, uh, whatever you want to call it. He does that all the time. He did it in my interview with him 
constantly. And I get why people go, well, wait, how, how can that be a good answer? Uh, to be clear, he did definitively deny uh, being sexually attracted to young boys at the end of the answer. And by the way, it's also important to point out, he had just been asked, are you a pedophile? And he said, no. Okay, so, so he, the context there matters, but here's where I'm going with this. When I heard that answer, John, that answer was so bad. It was the first inkling I had. Could this guy be innocent? Mm -hmm. Because because the guy that can't answer that question, one, can't get away with this for 40 years. No, I don't care how large the cover-up was, and there's no evidence of a cover-up. But, but two... Again, if this is real, he's been thinking about this every day of his life, why he's sexually attracted to young boys. He would have that answer down. <laughs> it, would be, it would be second nature. It would be part of his DNA. And the, but, but if you're Jerry Sandusky and you're effectively asexual, which is my theory on who Jerry is, and I think his medical records back me up on that. We get into that later on in the podcast mm -hmm. episodes. If you're asexual and the concept of being sexually attracted to young boys is such a bizarre thought, they, when Bob Costas asks you about it, you go, am I sexually attracted to young boys? And then you, you're considering it for the first time in your life going, what, what? And then you give this strange answer that actually makes, believe it or not, some sense. Well, that, that goes to back, uh, back to when you asked Jerry, when did he, you know, first think that he could be convicted of these crimes? And his answer to you was something like, you know, when the judge read it, he hadn't even considered that, that he would be convicted. Well, yeah, you have it pretty much right, although it's even more dramatic than that, because I my second interview with Jerry and this was with Dottie Sandusky, his wife in prison. I I was pretty certain he was innocent at this point because I had spent the, the previous year looking at the case from a completely different perspective. And I want to know, I said to both of them, I said, can you both tell me the first moment you thought this might not work out for us? Okay. This might not be OK. This might not be OK. Now, if. And I phrased it that way purposely, because if you're guilty, there are 10,000 moments in this story, right? That, that could be the end. Uh-oh, uh-oh, we're in trouble, right? However, if you're innocent, in my mind, there's only w one answer to that question, especially if you happen to be very religious, as Jerry and Dottie are. And I think religion plays a huge role in this case that no one understands. It's not just the whole Catholic Church thing. There's so many different elements where religion underneath the surface plays a role. And it played a role in how Jerry and Dottie perceived how this was going to happen because they thought Jesus was going to protect them. And so when I asked Jerry Sandusky, and he's in handcuffs in his orange jumpsuit, handcuffs around his waist, he can't even scratch his nose, tears rolling down his eyes, and he, in great detail, explains to me his emotions uh, during the reading of the verdicts, which was the first moment he realized, oh, my gosh, this isn't going to work out. And then Dottie, even more emotion, more detail, says exactly the same thing, the reading of the verdicts. And I'm like, OK, 
There's no consciousness of guilt here. That's the answer that you would have to give if you were innocent, especially from a religious standpoint. And just to make sure this was not some sort of incredibly sophisticated, uh, you know, trap. I immediately, as soon as I got out of prison, I called Joe and Mandola. Uh, they're, you know, then at that point, they're, they're criminal defense attorney. I say, Joe, I just asked uh, Jerry and Dottie, what was the first moment they thought this might not work out for them? What do you think they said? And he paused and he said, was it the reading of the verdicts? And I go, all right, there we go. That's it. Uh, that that's it. Because he knew better than anybody else, just how incredibly naive these people were. And I mean, he, he told me that. And he took advantage of it, really. I mean, I think so, because he should have been honest and known that he was in over his head. Yeah. The, the short time frame of the case and he's, yes. these, these naive clients. But no, uh, Joe Mandola, I've defended him because of the, the circumstances for a long time, but I've stopped doing that as I've learned more. I mean, he blew this. He, he blew it. I mean, he tried. He tried really hard. But I also think he was compromised by his own, speaking of the Costas interview, he was compromised by his own uh, thirst for celebrity. I think it got to his head. He became a overnight 15-minute fame uh, kind of person. He was a local state college DUI attorney before he was, essentially. He had no, no qualifications for this. This is, by the way, the guy you hire when you think you're innocent. You, you hire the guy, you know, locally who's not that expensive. You don't need the dream team. When you're OJ Simpson and you're guilty as hell, you hire the dream team. When you're Jerry Sandusky and you're innocent, you hire Joe Amendola. And you see you see the results here. But, um, you know, the, the reality uh, of this is that um, uh, to me, there's ne- there's never been any consciousness of guilt on the part of Jerry and Dottie where there should be. And... Um, and that was a key moment for me to understand just how this happened. But just to finish up with the Joe Mandola thing, mm-hmm. Joe actually told me about two weeks before the trial began that Jerry says to him, Joe, can't we just talk to these guys and find out what's going on, you know, what the problem is? And Jerry's like, Joe, Joe was like, Jerry, you have no idea how much trouble you are in. But Poor Jerry, and this is another element that people don't understand, because the the response from the Sandusky side was so pathetic on so many levels, partially because they have both legs cut out from under them as soon as Penn State fires Joe Paterno and and Graham Spanier. So at that point, they're, you know, they've got no legs. Um, But uh, the, the final nail in the coffin is Jerry and Dottie, to a lesser degree, they still love these guys. These were sons to them. And so they keep thinking this is a misunderstanding. They're going to change their minds. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be able to testify in in court to this. This is not going to happen. Jesus will protect us. So this is is inhibiting any sort of attack. Not just that, but they also, so many perfect storm elements, they mistakenly think, and I believe this is why the Costas interview even happened, because I think Amendola was overconfident. They mistakenly think they have the boy in the McQuarrie episode, Alan Myers, who would be known as victim number two, on their team. They think he's on their team because he's given them, on the day Joe Paterno got fired, this blockbuster three-page statement to an FBI-trained former police officer investigator, and so they think we've got McQuarrie handled 
And once we get rid of McQuarrie because we got the boy in the shower, then we can just focus on these crazy stories these kids are, are, are telling. And, uh, and we got a real good shot at this. Well, as it turned out, Alan Meyer's mother used to work for Andrew Shubin. And guess who becomes a silent uh, Shubin client until after the trial is over? But Alan Myers, and it is my very strong opinion mm -hmm. that what happened here was Alan Myers was never abused. He knew he was never abused. It's possible he may have been convinced by the media coverage that other people were abused. And so therefore he wanted to let the trial take place without him and see what happens. And if Jerry gets convicted, well, then I'll get my money. But I'm not going to be the one that has blood on my hands by putting Jerry Sandusky behind bars. If other people put it behind bars, I'll take my seven, eight million dollars. Thank you very much. Uh, but I'm not going to do it before then. And that's exactly what ended up happening. And, and, and John, there's so many, so many elements of media malpractice during this. But when we get into this in the podcast, it's one of the more astonishing moments. And it's hard to put them, you know, there's so many of them, it's hard to rate them. But when victim two, his lawyers come forward, you know, Ross Feller Casey is the larger law firm, but Andrew Shubin is the direct lawyer in State College. When they announced very dramatically with an audio clip of a voicemail message that Jerry Sandusky left for, for Alan Myers, did they represent victim number two, the boy in the shower? This is less than a month after Jerry Sandusky has been convicted. There is not one shred of evidence that I've been able to find, nor do I believe it exists, that anyone in the media asked the very simple question, so why didn't he testify at trial? Yeah. We, we we just had a trial. We just had a trial. And you this is victim number two, but he never testifies. That, that never even occurred, never even occurred to the news media. Um, and and the reason why he didn't testify is because they didn't like his story. And the reason why they didn't like his story is that he was very much on the record as nothing ever having had happened him not just that night in the shower but ever with jerry sandusky and he'd made he'd made statements under his name in the local paper defending jerry sandusky in two different local newspapers mm -hmm. he wrote a letter to the editor in his own name as a sergeant in the marine corps defending jerry sandusky in great detail and uh and he did so again uh, in September of 2011, in a police interview where he ends the interview saying, I feel like you're trying to get me to lie about Jason Dusky. I will never say anything bad about Jason Dusky. And then on November 9th of 2011, he comes in unannounced to Joe Mandola's office and gives uh, the statement that I would later wave on the Today Show, desperately hoping that somebody in the news media might have some semblance of curiosity which, of course, there was no curiosity about that at all uh, as to what the nature of this statement is. It's an amazing statement. It has details in it. Only the boy in the shower could know. And it's declarative that Mike McQuarrie is not telling the truth and that Jerry Sandusky never abused him. Now, I'm sorry, as a married sergeant in the Marine Corps, uh, <laughs> that, is, that has to mean something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, and it's and it's and it's consistent with a whole lifetime of actions. Not this is not just you know, somebody not wanting to admit that there was abuse, uh, that, that this is so far beyond that when you understand the full story of Alan Myers. And then, of course, there's the ultimate motivation of he got paid at least seven million dollars uh, because of his participation without even having to testify at Jerry Sandusky's uh, trial, although he did testify in an appeal hearing years later in 2016, a hearing I attended where uh, bizarrely Alan Myers was showed far more uh, anger towards me 
than he did towards Jerry Sandusky, who he was seeing for the first time uh, since his arrest. Uh, and, you know, was the guy who supposedly abused him uh, for, for all those years. I found that to be very odd that I that, you know, that he was he was in his testimony was much more angry at me. Uh, be, than, be, because he, you're the guy that's calling him out on his bullshit, baby. Or? I, well, I guess I happen to be sitting right behind his mother and his brother during that testimony. Yeah. And um, and when the testimony ended with Alan Meyer saying, I don't remember like 34 times, including, by the way, I don't remember where the picture of me and Jerry was taken at my wedding. At my wedding in my Marine Corps uniform, I don't remember where that picture was taken. Um, I followed uh, his mother and his brother immediately outside of the courtroom, and they knew who I was. And they they clearly had a plan because as, as the, the mom went down the staircase, the brother, who's a pretty big guy, blocked my way so that I couldn't get to her. It was only the three of us. We were only three people even in, in the vicinity. And so I, I basically screamed at his mom that she better hope that there's no hell because that's where she's going. Or something to that effect, um, uh, because you know they, these were people who revered Jerry Sandusky, and they sold them out for for millions of dollars. Yeah, I mean it, this is a this is a case about corruption and people acting in their own self interests. And um, I'll let you go, John. Here we'll wrap this up. But I mean, you've said this many times. This is not a, a grand conspiracy. There's no grand conspiracy. It's a perfect storm, and then people just acting in their own self interest, and it's. That's I like the to- best conspiracy that there is. In fact, in my mind, that's the only conspiracy that can ever work, John. I, I am an ardent anti-conspiracy person. Now, there are some smaller elements of conspiracy here. I mean, there. I think that there was a, a Tom Corbett, John Surma conspiracy against uh, uh, Spanier and Paterno. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that existed. I think there was a, a conspiracy between uh, Aaron Fisher and his mother uh, to, to uh, use this for money. Uh, and it worked out very well for but them. But that's e- even even going back to the Surma thing. That's even Surma acting in his own self interest. Where it was what his was it his son or his brother's son that played for Joe Paterno and then ended up committing suicide? Right. Right. So his, it, the Surma family turned on Joe Paterno long before this. Where it, the it was his nephew, John Surma's mm-hmm. nephew, the man who ended up announcing Joe Paterno's firing. By the way, as the vice chairman of the board of trustees. And I have to say, there's been so many little moments, even at the beginning where I started to go, what, wait, wait, what? That, that's odd. Why is the vice chairman making this announcement? That's an immediate sign mm-hmm. that there's something amiss, right? Well, because there had been a coup and John Serma and Tom Corbett had led a coup uh, and, and John Serma had this, has been called a vendetta against Joe Paterno because of the treatment, the perceived treatment of his nephew, uh, the son of Vic Surma. Uh, and, and it's very well documented. I mean, John, Grand Spanier, one of the first things Grand Spanier said to me in our first conversation was, you know, for years, John Surma used to come to me and say, well, when are we getting rid of Joe Paterno? And I could never understand why he was so obsessed with like every year. When are we getting rid of Joe Paterno? Well, he saw his opportunity and, and Corbett and Surma had aligned self-interest. And going after Spanier, who was a liberal who Corbett had fought against uh, over education funding, and Surma wanted Paterno, and they got they both got what they wanted in the middle of a moral panic. So I, I I'm glad you mentioned this issue of conspiracy. I loathe conspiracy theories, and and it's so frustrating to me that I get lumped in on this as somehow I'm a conspiracy theorist because people now think, and I get it, that anything that seems outlandish. 
and against everything you think you know, well, that must be a conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. There's unique circumstances. There has to be unique circumstances for for an injustice that that I'm alleging to have have occurred. And I think we've uh, illustrated in the last hour and 15 minutes that the circumstances existed here on steroids, on steroids. And it all goes back to Joe Paterno. If Joe Paterno is not a household name with the image that he had and and was on the last legs of his career, if all those things aren't in place, none of this happens. If Joe Paterno had retired the year before, none of this happens because there's nothing to ignite the explosion. Mm -hmm. Nothing. And uh, all I ask is that people look at this. This is too story. The story is too important to let go before we know what the real truth is. And, and by the way, I might have, you know, I don't, I might not have every I dotted and T crossed. The story is incredibly complex. I'm sure there are things that even I don't know, or that maybe I don't have correct, but I know, I know that in the big picture, I'm right. I know this did not happen. And lots of people are now starting to agree with me, including people involved in the story. We've got an interview with Gary Schultz, one of the three administrators accused of a cover-up in this case, saying Jerry Sandusky is innocent. Mm -hmm. We've got interviews with two members of the Penn State Board of Trustees, prominent members, titans of industry, guys with great reputations, things to lose. Al Lord, Bob Capretto, saying that they believe Jerry Sandusky is innocent. Uh, Kevin Horn, the former editor of of Onward State. Uh, you know, just came out uh, yesterday and said Jerry Sandusky is innocent. And there are a lot of other people, John, behind the scenes who are in the same boat who just don't have the courage. Uh, you know, people like Jay Paterno, who I know knows that Jerry Sandusky is innocent, but because of Scott Paterno's take on this, won't say that publicly. And so, all I ask is is take ch- take a look at this, listen to it. You're, you're going to find it fascinating. It's entertaining, yeah. and it's really not just for somebody who's usually interested in this story. Obviously, if you are, that's a huge plus. But but this podcast works on a lot of different levels. And by the way, it's free. So check it out. Yeah. I mean I'll just I'll just echo that. So it's and it's very, very well done. And if you've I mean, the whole spectrum, if you're if you followed this case the whole time, if you know nothing about it, um, just start at episode one and and make your way through. And it's, uh, I mean, it's a commitment. It's going to take time, but, uh, <laughs> you know, you could listen, you could listen to a lot of things, but this, like, like John said, even if you don't care about Penn state, this will be fascinating. Um, you, you will learn things. You'll learn things about people, about psychology. Um, it's, it, it's interesting. And, uh, I highly recommend it with the benefit of hindsight, um, with John Ziegler and John, any, any parting words before I let you go? Yeah. If you want to listen to the, the raw, interviews that we did that I just alluded to with all those people, just go to our website, which is framingpaterno.com. That's framingpaterno.com. There's 17 hours of raw interviews. I mean, that's an incredible act of transparency on our part to, to make, mm-hmm. uh, you know, give access to the raw interviews that we did for this podcast. Cause I didn't want anyone claiming that we we're taking things out of context or, uh, you know, whatever. It's all right there for anyone to listen to again, all for free at framingpaterno.com. Well, that's great. John Ziegler, thank you. Thank you, John. All right, guys, taking a quick break here. Last week, I talked to you about uh, Tyler Colford and his new song, also known as Crypto Man. And uh, he's featured on a track with Intrinsic. It's called First World Problems. Basically, what it's doing is it's talking about different concepts are woven throughout the track, you know, cancel culture, grifters, inflation, innovation, all kinds of different things. It's a really, really interesting track. 
the video dropped this past week. It is amazing to actually the taxation is death mug that we sell in the Lions of Liberty store, lionsofliberty.store. You can pick yours up today. Makes the debut in the video. Going to link to the video on the show notes page. But please, please on top of that, of course, like the video, share the video. Please go wherever you listen to your music, iHeartRadio, whichever one of these places where you listen to music, please like and follow Crypto Man. And please like this song, share with your friends. And it's just an awesome song, guys. So I got a clip for you. Check it out. Hope you all enjoyed that interview on Finding Freedom, another awesome guest. And hopefully you guys also have subscribed to the Lions of Liberty podcast and you're getting all three of our unique shows in your uh, little listening device delivered to your ears. Um, If you haven't, please do that. Just go to your app, you know how to do it, and subscribe. You can also leave us a five-star review and a nice comment. We would prefer if you did it on Apple Podcasts, but anywhere you can on the internet, please leave us a positive comment. Also, if you want to support us, we would love that too. Please go to patreon.com slash lines of liberty. You can uh, support us for as little as a couple bucks. Or if you get in at a higher level, you get merchandise and access to us and all the way up to you can advertise on the show or get to even produce a show. So check it all out, patreon.com slash lions of liberty. And if you haven't checked it out yet, please consider checking out the Lions of Liberty store where we have some awesome t-shirts. We have a taxation is death t-shirt with an awesome design. We have a wax on tax off t-shirt and we're always coming up with new ideas and adding new t-shirt designs to the store. Check that out at lionsofliberty.store. And if you're in the pride, you get a discount on anything you buy in the store. So you do both of those things and you win. That's all I got, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fire is liberty burning. Oh, 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 oh,